This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Carla McLaren. Carla is an award-winning author, social science researcher, and pioneering educator whose empathic approach to emotions has taken her through the healing of her own childhood trauma, into a healing career, and now into the study of sociology, anthropology, neurology, cognitive psychology, and education. Carla is the author of several programs with Sounds True, including The Language of Emotions, What Your Feelings Are Trying to Tell You, and The Art of Empathy, A Complete Guide to Life's Most Essential Skill. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Carla and I spoke about emotions as messengers and the questions you can ask to elicit the gifts of different emotional states. We talked specifically about depression as a forced time out and what the vital messages might be that depression brings. And finally, we talked about what it might look like to treat ourselves like a village where all the members of the village have an essential role to play. Here's my conversation with a very original thinker, the pioneering Carla McLaren. Carla, the title for Sounds True's new anthology on redefining the journey through depression comes from your work, comes from your work on emotions. And the title is Darkness Before Dawn. And I'm wondering, to begin our conversation, if you can explain a little bit about this phrase, darkness before dawn. Well, what's interesting, and you probably know this, is that darkness before dawn is the subtitle of a chapter in my book, The Language of Emotions. And it's the subtitle of the chapter on suicidal urges, which would be, you know, depression times 10. Um, it, is in, it is in the sort of area of depression, but it's kind of, you know, it's a much more intense version of it. But, but because depression and suicidal urges are connected to each other, um, I think saying that depression can be the darkness before dawn is also true because any time that you move into depression, and I'm talking about situational depression, which is where you can track what the depression is responding to. Um, this would be different than, say, a, a hormonal depression or a bipolar depression or some other kind of more serious depression like major depression. But when we drop into depression that is situational, there is a way that the depression is stopping us from moving forward because moving forward would not be wise. It is not a good idea to move forward with whatever it is that's going on, and it could be um, it, some situation at work that is simply untenable or a relationship that cannot 
go forward and needs to end or something along those lines or 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 you're simply not taking care of yourself and you're completely um uh drained and tired your depression will step forward at that time to say hey pal do not move forward with what's going on here um we're going to shut it down so it's sort of like the psyche acting intelligently and um, compassionately to stop you from going in a direction that isn't going to lead anywhere good at all. And if you can stop, that darkness can help you move toward the dawn of, oh, what is it that I do want? This depression is telling me, you know, in no uncertain terms, what I don't want and what doesn't work. So then that leaves room for what does. Now, I've heard from people suffering from depression that, they don't know the reason. They don't know what's going on. This is happening for some intelligent reason. I'm too depressed to have mm-hmm. any idea what the intelligent reason might be. How would you address mm-hmm. that person? I would say I have something on my on my uh, website called Working Through Depression. And depression is my friend. Um, I say that my brain gets an A-plus in depression. <laughs> so I've worked with it throughout my whole life and learned a lot of practices but one of the practices for depression is to actually go through a checklist and see if there's anything going on in your life that is pulling at you and that as soon as you think of it just makes you go, oh, God, no. Um, if there isn't anything, you know, if your relationships are healthy and your workplace is healthy and, and you're taking care of your body and you're getting enough sleep, then I would say then it's time to go to your health care practitioner. It's time to go and see you know, could this be hormonal? Could this be biochemical? Um, and is there a way to support myself through this? Because as you know, if depression goes on too long, it sort of creates its own weather pattern. You know, you sort of, instead of having this momentary depressive feeling, you kind of move your entire house into the house of depression. And that can be, as as we've all experienced, a very dangerous time that's mostly darkness before darkness. There's there's no dawn. Now, you said something interesting. My brain gets an A-plus for depression. What did you mean by that? <laughs> well, um, I'm looking at, at non-pathologizing ways to talk about people's differences from the norm. So if we were going to give me a pathology label, we would say that I have or suffer from major depression and dysthymia, right? But I don't find that those are helpful ways to look at it. I'm not pretending that this isn't true for me, but rather than talking about myself in terms of a medicalized um, deficit narrative, I rather look and say, I get an A-plus in depression. I freaking rock at depression. (laughs) I mean, I'm really good at this. But what that also means is I need to be careful around things that would depress a regular person because they're going to knock me out. For instance, TV shows that are dystopias. I have to be very careful. What does that word mean? What does that word mean? Oh, a utopia is a happy, perfect world, and a dystopia is an unhappy, miserable world. Mm -hmm. So if I watch drama that there's no one to like and there's no one to care about and there's no hope, my depression will start roiling just because I'm in the presence of a depressive place. So uh, the show Game of Thrones. Don't want to watch it, thanks. Uh, the show House of Cards. Nope, ain't watching it. Um, Breaking Bad. No. 
um, I can watch it for a little while, but then I get drawn in, and I know that for my own health and emotional wellness, I need to be with funny, up-tempo people or, or dramas where you can care about someone, where there is hope, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. It does. Okay. Now, you talked about how for someone, they might have this sense of darkness before more darkness, that they don't feel into this hope of dawn. And, you know, as we titled our anthology, Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression, I wondered if some people might be like, oh, come on, stop promising the dawn. You don't know that that's going to happen. So what's your response to that? Um, if the depression is not responding to your practices, then I would say there may not be a dawn in that depression. You may need to go get some support. But I think one of the problems with depression is that we have so many rules about emotions that turn out not to work very well. And one of them is uh, the optimism bias, which is we all want to be up-tempo and looking at the positive side of life. And so any movement toward any of the sadness-based emotions, sadness, depression, um, grief, suicidal urges, tends to be put into pathology rather than saying, oh, I'm having a normal human emotion of depression or grief or sadness. Um, We say, oh, my God, I'm not optimistic. I'm negative. And so we not only have the depression, which has a job to do to tell us that what's going on needs to be looked at because it's not healthy and it's not working. But we we now have uh, like an emotion about the depression. Now we're um, ashamed about the depression. Now we're angry that we're ashamed about the depression. Now we feel afraid, you know, and I'm like, stop. This is an emotion pileup, right? Just keep it with you, with the emotion that's happening, depression. And there are practices for it. And if the practices don't work, then go get help. But it's not... You, you fail at depression. You fail at dealing with depression if it keeps going. Sometimes emotions and people need help. And um, there's a fairly easy way to find out if you need help, which is that if you do the practices and the depression doesn't even care and it doesn't move, then it's time to get help. Okay, so let's talk about these, quote-unquote, depression practices. What do you mean? What are the practices you offer? Well, what I do with depression is each of the questions, um, each of the emotions, I look at them as separate sort of entities that do very specific jobs in the psyche. And I have a question and a practice to do with each emotion. Um, I look at 17 different emotions, and uh, depression is one in the um, sort of sadness category. The Questions for depression are, um, where has my energy gone, and why was it sent away? That's really different than the questions most people ask about depression, which is, why do I fail at life, and why am I so horrible, and why is there no hope? Rather, look at the actual situation that's occurring. Your energy is being taken away by something intentional. So, so intentionally move into the depression and, and speak to it empathically. Um, work with it and say, depression, what, what do you want? What are you saying? What's going on here? Rather than, I am a depressed person, 
say, I am a person who is having the emotion of depression right now, and depression has a very specific job. So I can help my depression rather than fight it or fall into shame and and fear and anger about the fact of the human emotion of depression. So there are a couple of very interesting things you've said here that I want to underscore for a moment. The first is you're referring to depression as a normal human emotion. That's very interesting. You don't hear people talk about depression often that way. Is that how you see it? It's a normal human emotion? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it has its purpose. It has its place. But again, I'm talking about situational depression and, and not the more serious forms of depression that can really you know, completely knock you out. Um, okay, those are important distinctions to make. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so to say to someone who's having bipolar depression that they're, you know, not having a fun time at all, or someone with severe suicidal major depressive episode, to say, hey, why don't you ask your depression? Why, <laughs> like, stop. You know, there, there's sort of a triage that one needs to do with depression because it can be very dangerous to, to stay in depression for a long time because it it's about taking your energy away, and eventually, if it stays too long, your energy will be gone. So it's one of the emotions to be very, very aware and mindful of. And when you say, if it is a severe depression, that Mm -hmm. go check it out medically, perhaps get help, I presume you're referring to antidepressants and that there are times, in your view, this is a question, where antidepressants are needed? Question mark? Are needed? I would say... um, Yes, for the people for whom they work, but there are a lot of people for whom they don't work. And therapy, um, talk therapy has been shown to have tremendously good uh, um, results because it, you know, when you go to talk therapy, it's okay to talk about your depression and to start working on it and to start figuring out what's going on. And that is the depression practice. So in talk therapy, I mean, I was I was very anti antidepressant for um, decades, and my depression got to the point where it was that was no longer an issue for me. I couldn't handle it anymore, and I went on a dep- antidepressant for about three years, and it was so awesome I couldn't even believe it. It was great. I had no idea that that people whose brains don't get an A plus in depression actually feel that way. I was um, I was astonished at what it was like to have depression that I could manage. And then after learning how to manage it, I was able to transition off the antidepressant. But um, it was sweet. I couldn't believe it. Um, so I think, for, but, but I know many people that they've tried, you know, 16 antidepressants and nothing works. So for them, uh, talk therapy, maybe something alternative, uh, change in diet, something, something. Okay, so... Asking these two questions, where has my energy gone and why has it gone away? Could you give me some examples from your own A-plus history with depression of how you've answered those questions and how those answers helped you? Just really make it real how to work with those questions from your own experience. Yeah. um, Sometimes, I don't know if this happens for you, but sometimes I'll wake up in the morning and I'll just feel, ugh. And I don't really want to get up and, you know, I don't have that morning, yay, let's go do something. And so I've learned to stay in bed and to just go through the previous day and sort of do a, um, an inventory. 
where I did, you know, with my husband Tino, is there anything there? No. You know, with uh, with work, is there anything there? Oh. You know, sort of like I, I, I sit with the depression and I ask it questions, and I'll go through one by one with, you know, the things that might be happening. And I will find what it is that's gnawing at me and that the depression came to tell me. And then I'll figure out, okay, so that's where my energy's been taken away. I'm not allowed to move forward, so I need to go deal with that thing. And then when I know that, I can get up. And then maybe I'll call the person and say, did I say something really insensitive to you yesterday? Because I feel like we got off on the wrong foot, or something like that, you know? Or maybe it's, I ate too much candy on Halloween, and I feel horrible. You know, it, it can be something as simple as that, some change that may happen in the day before. But because I'm such a A-plus depression person, I've learned to catch my depression, like, immediately, because um, because I have been in, you know, severe suicidal depressions, it's almost like there's a track worn in my brain that if I am not careful around depression, I can drop into the suicidal urge. So I've learned, you know, the first whisper of depression, any kind of like, ugh, I just don't even, then I then I get on it right away. And it's actually become like my best friend. Depression now tells me, yep, that didn't work. Mm-mm, nuh-uh, can't do that. So it's actually kept me on a like a straight and narrow path and continually pointed me into the direction that my soul wants to go. And you don't hear that about depression. Yeah. yeah. There, there's an interesting quote from the essay that you've written for Darkness Before Dawn. I thought I'd read it and then you can comment on it, which is, quote, I've learned to treat my depression as a vital message about serious problems instead of mistakenly treating depression as the problem itself. Oh, that's good. I thought so, too. <laughs> now, I mean, there are some situations in which, uh, for instance, sometimes as women are going into, um, they're going through puberty and their hormones start riling up, young women can drop into depression just hormonally. So that can be something that really needs to be looked at because they're just, you know, filled with a lot of hormones and their brain is not managing well, so they need support. Uh, women at the end of their of their time uh, of, you know, monthly periods in um, menopause can also drop into pre- depressions hormonally. So in those instances and a number of other ones, then depression is the problem. So, but it's also something that's telling us, hey, hey, something's happening. It's the same thing, you know, when when people's hormones are going, uh, changing drastically, then the condition that would cause depression to arise has occurred. Something is wrong and we can't go forward in this way, so depression comes forward. So I always look at depression as like my, you know, first warning system. Uh, instead of saying, oh, my God, I'm depressed, which means I'm a failure at positive thinking or I'm a failure at meditation or I'm a failure or whatever. Instead, I'm looking at, oh, depression, what? What? What do, you, what do I need to do? Because uh, I trust you now. I know that you're trying to tell me something. Now, Carla, in your view, if I have this correctly, if I understand this correctly, all emotions are messengers. 
Can you explain that? I see emotions as really fundamental and vital aspects of every part of our mm, lives. I see them as fundamental to all thinking, um, all behavior, all motivation. So each emotion has a very specific job to do in the psyche, and each emotion helps us, or all the emotions together, help us become successful social beings and successful internal beings. So I see each emotion as carrying a message. Um, For instance, depression tells us, no, pal, you can't go forward. Sadness says, um, you're holding on to something that you don't need anymore, so let it go. Grief says, it's different than sadness. Grief says something has died. Someone or something has died, and you didn't have a choice about it. So here's the emotion that can help you um, survive that. And each emotion has its own job to do. And what we've been taught is that we only like the happy ones. We only like the, the finger quote, good ones. The problem is that if we look at emotions in the way that I'm categorizing them as there's 17 of them, the happiness emotions are only three. And I think that's like 17.5% of emotions. I think my math may be wrong. But we're trained to be good in a very few emotions. And the rest of them, the other 14, we are trained to run from and ignore. And then we try to go hide in the emotions in the happiness area. And um, the happiness emotions have their own jobs to do. They they have really important jobs to do, but it, they can't do the job of the other emotions. The other emotions evolved because there was a need for them. Um, so so looking at each one as a messenger kind of takes all that pathology off the so-called negative emotions. And so instead of reacting to the fact that you have human emotions that aren't happiness, oh my gosh. Um, you can say, oh, there's anger. Okay, it means that a boundary has been crossed or a rule has been broken. So what do I need to do about that? Rather than, here's anger, I'm going to destroy you. Or here's anger, I'm going to crush it because nice people are never angry. Um, It's a way to be empathic with the emotions. Now, Carla, when you talk about 17 different emotions and only three of them are in this happiness family, 17.5% or something like that. Something like that. (laughs) It makes me wonder then, I mean, do you think that someone who was living in a balanced, fluid place would be spending the majority of their time in experiencing these difficult emotions, anger, fear, panic, sadness, grief, etc., and only spending 17% of my time in the happiness equation? Or is it, you're not really saying that, but you're just wanting to open us to the no, whole but, range. but I'm saying, you know, those are, those are some awesome emotions. Look at the other ones, okay? How about the other ones? Yeah. And I think what, what I notice when people will get balanced is that their emotions work really um, subtly and softly such that they may not even know that they're having emotions. Hmm. Um, that, so a person who works really well with anger has good boundaries that are not... Um, crushing the boundaries of others. A person who works really well with fear has incredibly good instincts and intuition. A person who works very well with sadness does not hold on to crap they don't need. Um, 
a person who works very well with envy um, asks for appropriate remuneration and is um, makes sure that everyone around them has what they need as well. You would never hear that <laughs> um, if you didn't sit and talk to the emotions themselves. They know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive two free gifts just for visiting us. Just go to soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. That's soundstrue.com backslash free gifts. And now, back to Insights at the Edge. Okay, so in your work, you talk about these questions we can ask when we're having an emotional experience to help us hear the message, if you will, of what the emotion is appearing to teach us, to say to us. And you gave the example of depression. I'm wondering if you could tell us some of the questions you ask for some of the other emotions. I think it's so helpful. I'd love our listeners to hear this. Sure. Um, In the... Let's see, in anger, the questions are, uh, what must be protected and what must be restored? We always kind of know that anger wants us to protect something, protect ourselves, protect our sense of self. But there's also a restoration in there, is restoring the boundary. Um, if you learn to work with anger with, with the rule that you will not break the boundaries of another person, then anger can become one of the most honorable emotions there is because it's about boundaries, not just mine, but about everybody's. Now let's just pause for a moment here on anger because, you know, I think there's a lot of ideas that anger is a quote-unquote destructive emotion and that, you know, it's harmful for you, it's harmful for the chemistry in your body to be angry, it's harmful to others, and it sounds like you're saying something pretty different here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yes. Anger can be violent, and uh, so can joy. <laughs> There's lots of emotions if you don't know how to work with them and you don't know how to wield them um, with skill. Uh, you can hurt people with your emotions, and you can hurt yourself too. Um, uh, sadness, if people stay in sadness for a long time, that can be bad for the psyche as well. That can be bad for the body. Depression, we know that that can be bad for the body if you stay in it for too long. What I'm looking at with emotions is how to help them flow, how to help them give the message and move on as they're meant to, rather than, you know, sort of moving into them and living there forever. So if anger is about boundaries, you can set boundaries with violence. You know, you can say, screw you, this is how I'm going to do it. Or you can set the boundary without violence. And you can say, well, you know what, I understand that you want to do it that way. And... That's really important. I need for us to make room for me to do it this way so that we don't... Do you know what I'm saying? I'm still, I'm still setting the boundary, mm-hmm. but I'm not doing it by, by tearing into someone. And when people are very good with anger, um, my dad is somebody who's very good with anger, 
he sets boundaries just by standing in his body. Nobody messes with my dad. And uh, and he never has to say anything. And there's nothing angry or rude coming off of him. He just holds his energy in such a way that people do not mess with him. And it, he was a wonderful person to grow up with, someone who did anger without any violence and any... Um, you know, he he could just look at someone and they would say, "Okay, I didn't mean to do that." <laughs> you know, um, and he's a funny, um, welcoming guy, but people just do not step over his boundaries. Um, uh, another emotion, fear, which most people hate. Fear, they hate it, and I see it as intuition and action. And the question for fear is, what action should be taken? Um, fear helps us orient to change novelty or possible physical hazards. And so all you need to do with fear is just say, okay, what do I need to do? And the answer will be different depending on what's happening. Let's pause on fear for a moment, too, because I think there's a lot of talk, especially in spiritual teaching circles, about becoming fearless. And, you know, once you know eternity in this moment, there's no more fear. You're not afraid of death. You're not, you know, da-da-da-da. And that the goal, it seems, is to become fearless. And once again, it yeah. sounds like you're saying something quite different. Yeah. And I have to say, as as you may remember, I grew up in the New Age spiritual community. And the first version of this book, The Language of Emotions, was called Emotional Genius. And it was what I created after spending decades in the spiritual community, watching people um, try to live that way, try to live without fear or anger or any of the emotions. I watched you know, amazing car crashes of entire communities based on these ridiculous emotion ideas and rules. So um, that was my early understanding of emotions and how they work and why partly came from watching my spiritual communities um, make all kinds of rules about emotions and then implode. Um, fear is intuition. It is um, instinct. If People, there's a, there's a, I don't know if you have them out in Colorado, but here in California there's a bumper sticker that says, no fear. And I always put on my turn signal and move away from that person because if they don't have fear, they don't have instincts or intuition, and they're probably dangerous. So I'm like, okay, that person's telling me who they are. Um, but the thing is when people say no fear, and then I check with them, and I'm like, well, how are your instincts, you know, if – if someone, you know, uh, comes up to you and do you feel any kind of this person's safe or this person isn't? And they're like, well, sure. And I said, then you're working with fear. Get over yourself. Um, what they're looking to get rid of is the fear of things. Actually, it's anxiety they're looking to get rid of. They don't even know what emotion they're talking about. Anxiety is fear of the future or fear of things you can't control. Um, and so that's what they're talking about. Um, and anxiety has its own job, too. Anxiety is an incredibly important emotion. Like depression, it's also a difficult one because it tends to rile up the body and um, it can have lingering effects if you don't know how to work with it. Um, okay, I think this is good. So with anxiety, what are the questions for anxiety? Um, anxiety is, what I call it, is the procrastination um, um, warning system. And so with anxiety, as you know, it can run you around because anxiety is based on the future and you can't go to the future. Um, So the questions for anxiety are, um, 
what triggered this feeling. That way you can track back to seeing what your anxiety is trying to point to because it can get so, you can get, just start spinning. Um, and then what really needs to get done so that you can begin to organize all of the activation that anxiety has. So anxiety is about, um, it's a procrastination alert message, and it is um, wanting you to be prepared for something that you are not yet prepared for. So anxiety knows that you haven't done the work and you're going into something new and you're not prepared. And a lot of people don't want to ever hear that about themselves. You know, so then they have the anxiety, then they have shame about the anxiety, then they have anger about the shame, and then they have fear. I'm like, come on, keep it to the first emotion. This is, this is really simple. Just calm it down. Um, so I think each of the so-called negative emotions um, can cause an emotion pileup because people have been taught such unhelpful things about them. So what about this idea then, also popular in spiritual teaching circles. I want to be free from anxiety. I never want to have anxiety. Anxiety is about the mythic future. What do you think of that? Well, the future is only mythic until it arrives, and then are you prepared? I mean, anxiety is just a wonderful emotion. Uh, It's totally necessary, and um, uh, it can help you. I mean, some people need their anxiety. Everybody's different. But some people really need to get up to the very edge of a deadline and stay up all night and do whatever the thing is. That's how they function. And some people need to do the thing six months ahead of time so that they never feel that level of anxiety, right? Um, it's it, However it works for people. Um, but something that I see a lot of people do with anxiety is they start breathing in some other emotion like joy or happiness to to downregulate from the anxiety and get a better emotion up in there. But um, what is what is being looked at in research that's really helpful with anxiety is actually turning toward it. Um, one really interesting study was done at a college where they brought uh, students in and told them they were going to have a calculus test in 30 minutes for which they did not um, study because they didn't know about it. So they were creating a tremendous anxiety situation, and they took the kids into three different groups. The first group was just told to sit and um, uh, just wait. The second group was told to sit and meditate for the 30 minutes. The third group was told to write down exactly what they were feeling. And so the meditating group was kind of going off into another emotion you know, or another state. Um, the waiting group wasn't doing anything. The writing group was actually moving into the anxiety. I'm afraid about this test. I don't remember what cosine and sine do. I don't know, you know. So they're just going over and over it. And you would think that the people who went over and over it would do terribly, but they did the best of all three. And I find it really fascinating that by listening to the emotion, Basically, what they were doing was they were down-regulating from all that anxiety by writing down exactly what they didn't know so that they could see it and go, oh, yeah, I don't know that. And by knowing what they didn't know and by hearing what the anxiety was telling them, they were better prepared for the test than the people who went into another state intentionally. Okay, a few more of the 17 emotions and the questions that we can learn to ask. 
Let me see. I'll do one of the one of the happinesses. With happiness, I see it as a very delightful emotion that tells you, you know, this thing is awesome or we're we're looking ahead to some awesome thing. And there's not really a question to ask. I just say to happiness, thank you. This is awesome. And then the happiness moves on. Um, contentment is a different uh, emotion in the area of the happinesses. Contentment tur- turns toward you and tells you, hey, Tammy, you did a good job. That was awesome what you just did. Um, contentment is sort of self-regard, and it is um, self-esteem. And basically, there's not much to say to contentment except thank you for renewing my faith in myself. See you next time I do something good. Um, with the happinesses, there's not really much to say because we are trained in the happinesses. We are trained in welcoming them, loving them, treating them as really, really important. So most people don't get riled up about them. And there's not really much to do um, except to say, oh, enjoy them. And what I'm doing in my work is trying to find ways for people to enjoy all the other emotions, too, because they're just as important and they're just as as, um, necessary. Right, and I can imagine somebody at that moment right here as they hear you say that, enjoy, I'm going to enjoy my panic, I'm going to enjoy my depression. (laughs) Carla, come on. Come on, come on, on. be serious. (laughs) I am. Um, you know, panic is a wonderful emotion uh, that in the moment only has three actions, and that is fight, flee, or freeze. It's a great emotion when you are in serious physical danger. If you don't have panic, you know, the bear comes, and you're walking in, in the forest, and you're alone, and there's the bear. I, I would hope that you've got some panic going, and you don't want to move into envy or, let's say... <laughs> move into contentment, or or some other emotion that is no place there. Um, Rather, you have to make a decision now. Are you freezing? Are you fleeing? Are you fighting? So panic is wonderful. The problem with panic is, as Peter Levine so beautifully says, is when when it gets uh, stuck in what we call PTSD, um, he looks at it very differently, that the panic is trying to have you replay the situation so you can learn from it. Uh, So the next time you see a bear, you'll have more options. But uh, PTSD, I mean, they're calling it post-traumatic stress disorder, um, can be incredibly uncomfortable uh, because you get all that activation as if the bear is there, but there's nothing in the room and and you can't understand what's going on. Um, Learning how panic moves and why and what it's doing when it returns. It's really wonderful because then you can welcome the panic and say, hey, panic, thank you. Now let's go and look and see what we need to learn from that situation in which you saved my life. So, Carla, would you say it is your experience at this point in your life that you enjoy all 17 different emotional experiences that might arise? I love them. <laughs> yes, yes. They're all my friends now, and thank goodness, because they beat me up when I was younger. Okay. So it sounds like for somebody to become skillful at working, first of all, with all of these different 
emotions. It's important to be able to even identify these different 17 emotions. I think most people don't have that kind of language. They're like, you know, I feel mad, I feel sad, I feel happy, I feel afraid. That's kind of it. I mean, and that's, you know, even that, I think, I don't know if a lot of people are even able to use those big general categories. So what do you think about that? Do you think it's important to be able to have this kind of nuanced understanding that you're referencing here in our conversation? Yes, absolutely. Um, there is some research that, that suggests that if people don't have a word for things, they can't identify it. Um, so Russian, people who speak Russian have many different uh, words for blue. So it's not light blue and dark blue, but there are a lot of different words for for gradations of blue, and they can actually see more blue, more different colors of blue than English speakers who don't have as many words. I think the same is true for emotions. If if you and I don't have enough words for emotions, we can't really identify them. I created an emotional vocabulary list that's free on my site because people are always asking me, well, what's, what's soft anger? What's soft envy? Um, so we gathered all the words, a bunch of people on Facebook and my site, and we just, you know, batted it back and forth for a couple of weeks. And when I go and look at the stats on my site, um, I would say the Emotional Vocabulary page, it's a free download, is the most visited page on my site, and people get there. It's almost like the Internet now just sends people to Carla (laughs) because people will put in the search term, how do I emotion words, and they end up up at my site, or vocabulary for anger, and they end up at my site. Um, So this is a really... um, I didn't realize it was such a big thing, but it is sort of like the center of how people are getting to my site. And luckily, they got something free they can download. So I've got the emotions in all the different categories and different gradations of emotions. So there's like soft sadness, intense sadness, mood state sadness, to help people understand that there's that there's each emotion has like many different levels of intensity and if you can catch it like I do with my depression, if you can catch it early, you can listen to the emotion, do what it needs you to do without having to drop into a mood that you maybe can't get out of. Now, you said something in our conversation a little earlier that I found really interesting. Something like when we're working with our emotions in a really healthy way, something to this effect, that they... Mm -hmm come kind of in a soft way. They move Mm -hmm. through us and that it's not this big, loud, you know, and I'd wonder if you could say a little bit more about that. I look at emotions as existing, as I said, in different, um, um, I guess, intensities. So I look at them as the soft presentation of that emotion, the mood state presentation. At the soft presentation, almost nobody knows that they are that emotion. It took a hyper-empath to see them that way because I've been tracking emotions all my life in people and animals. and So I'm able now to say, okay, here's, okay, the anger is coming. Let's see how they handle it. But for instance, soft anger. Oh, and there's the third state, which is intense. So at, at the soft level, most people can't see it. At the mood state level, almost everybody can see it. And at the intense level, oh yeah, you can see it. Um, so the soft anger would be cross, apathetic, cold, displeased, detached. 
um, mood state anger, angry, mad, offended, antagonized, sarcastic, exasperated, um, intense anger, hostile, aggressive, contemptuous, hateful, vengeful, seething, spiteful. But if you go back to the soft ones, the frustrated, the critical, the displeased, the detached, and you can catch the anger there, you don't need to go any further with it if you can turn toward the anger and say, okay, what boundary has been crossed? What rule has been broken? How do I restore the situation without injuring others? It it seems like it takes a while. Like, why would you want to stop there? But look what happens if you let anger go and you don't have any skills for it. You could tear up your relationships. So once again, I I want to be clear if, if I understand you. Are you saying that as we become more mature, sophisticated, as we grow in our ability to work with emotions, that Mm -hmm. we're growing in the direction of experiencing all of the emotions in a soft way? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's take an example then of something like grief. Let's just take that. Mm -hmm. Tell me what a soft grief might feel like versus an intense grief when a serious loss is present. Let's say it might be melancholy, Mm, low, wistful, distracted, Mm, disconnected. That that would be like sort of a light, soft grief. And then into the mood state, which would be grieving, um, sorrowful, uh, dispirited, world-weary, mournful, and then with intense, uh, despairing, um, anguished, inconsolable, mm-hmm. grief-stricken, yeah, heartbroken, bereaved. Mm-hmm. Uh, understanding what emotion you're feeling and what level of intensity you're feeling it, it gives you information. Based, I have a lot of skills for these emotions so that people can begin to live more gracefully with them. So it's helpful to go, okay, what am I feeling? And then have a list. <laughs> okay, what am I? Am I peeved? Yeah, I'm peeved. Um, and then to understand, okay, I'm in anger now. So let me go look at my anger page. You know, at, at first that's what you're doing. You're going back and forth in the book. <laughs> okay, what is anger? Um, and then you get it. You know, it's like any new skill. But just understanding what you're saying here about the soft level being we grow towards this softness, When we find ourselves in intense states, whatever they might be, that means that we didn't listen carefully enough when the soft presentation was there? Or that emotion just needs to be really powerful right now. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting that if an emotion moves to the intense place, um, like if if you're grieving, you definitely want to be uh, heartbroken and bereaved. You know, you want to be in intense sadness because it's an intensely sad thing. Uh, the intense emotions that are troubling are usually in the anger area because people have almost no practice for anger except uh, not having any, which is, that doesn't work. It, so most people, when they're in intense anger, become violent um, in one way or another, emotionally or physically. Um, so there are emotions that I call the raging rapids, um, rage, uh, intense anger, um, suicide urges, of course, and um, panic. There are three emotions to be really careful with because people don't know what they're doing. They haven't been taught. 
but you know if if you move to intense fear which would be um horrified phobic petrified paralyzed there's probably a reason you know there's probably something going on so it's not as if going to the intense state of each emotion is problematic in and of itself there are just you know three specific emotions to be very wary of because we don't know how to work with them mhm now i want to bring out one other aspect of your work with emotions you talk a lot in your writing about there being a village inside of us and that we need to bring together all of the different elements and intelligences of this village. So what do you mean by this village metaphor? Um, I think a lot of people, well, Carl Jung, talk about different elements of the psyche. So earth element would be the body and the physical world. Uh, Air element would be the mind and the intellectual world. Fire element would be for people who have a spiritual viewpoint, that would be spirituality, um, ideas about God. And for people who don't have a spiritual outlook, it would be vision and um, you know ideas that seem to come from nowhere. Uh, then the the fourth element is the water element, and that's the artistic, flowing, expressionistic, uh, emotional realm. And what I um, looked at in my own growing is that working with all four elements together rather than saying, okay, spirituality is the best and emotions are the worst. No, um, the air element is the best, intellect is the best, and the emotions are the worst and spirituality is stupid. What I noticed is that people who didn't work with their four elements were always truncated and, and lopsided in some way. So my early work was to like try to bring all four elements together and be equal in my awareness. And what I found when I did that was that a fifth element came up. And in many cosmologies, the fifth element, uh, let's see, in Chinese, it's wood, which isn't dead wood, but um, the growing plant. Um, in the Dogra cosmology, it's nature. Um, the Dogra is a West African uh, tribal cosmology. Um, and in uh, the Jungian, I don't know if Jung had it, but it's ether. It's the fifth element that arises out of the four elements coming into balance. So for me, that's the village inside. Is all four elements are informing me, and then what arises out of it is the nature self or the ether self that is the fully resourced human being who has emotions but isn't emotion, who has a mind but isn't mind, who has a body but isn't entirely body, and who has a spirituality or ideology or vision but isn't only that. So that's that's my Beautiful. that's my village metaphor. Beautiful. Okay, Carla, just two more questions. Here's the first. We began our conversation by talking about this new anthology, Darkness Before Dawn, redefining the journey through depression. And you've written another book with Sounds True in addition to the language of emotions called The Art of Empathy. And I'm curious what your view is of relating to somebody who's experiencing depression. Perhaps there's a listener who knows someone, a friend or someone in their family, who goes into depressive states or is depressed right now. What's your suggestions, your recommendations on how to effectively empathize and relate with such a person? For me, with depression, I know that... um, 
a lot of people don't want to talk about it. So not only are you depressed, but you're isolated and you can't speak. Um, one of the things that can make another person's life very, very nice <laughs> is just to say, how are you feeling? I mean it. You know, because you usually say, hi, how are you? And it doesn't mean anything. How are you feeling? I mean it. And then to have time to listen. Um, a lot of people don't want to listen to depression because they're not aware of it, but their brain probably gets an A-plus in depression too. So hearing the depression of others could be kind of dangerous for them because they don't have skills in their own depression. So they just want to stay away from those so-called negative people. But if you can sit with people in depression, and instead of saying, have you tried this or have you tried that, you know, constantly trying to fix it for them, ask them, have have you found anything that works for you? Um, do you, you know, and if they haven't, would you like me to do some research? I've got some energy, and I know that sometimes, you know, when you're depressed, you just don't have energy. Would you like me to do some research for you? Or would you like me to find, you know, a support group or anything like that? And if they say no, that's the answer. But at least they know that you're there and you're willing to talk to them about depression and you're not afraid of it yourself and you're not going to fall apart because someone's depressed. What do you think about presenting someone with these questions that you ask? Where has your energy gone and why has it gone? It could seem like that might be quite confrontative depending on the state somebody's yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. I I think maybe give them the language of emotions and say, there's a depression chapter here, but don't say it yourself because part of being depressed is feeling powerless. So if someone comes at you, you know, like, here's what you do. Here's how you do it. Have you tried the all tomato diet? Um, that can just cause more depression. So just being willing to talk and being willing to offer whatever energy you have, you know, do, do you need me to pick stuff up for you? Um, you know, you would do that if someone had the flu. And you wouldn't, you know, people don't pathologize the flu and turn it into you're a social leper. Um, they would do something for you. And so I think just welcoming depressed people into the the realm of the everyday world. And, you know, I have friends who say, hey, how's your depression? I'm like, my depression's awesome. How's yours? <laughs> you know, to make it just a part of life. Um how are you doing? How, how are you feeling? How's your energy? Um, and then let them answer. Which brings me, Carla, to my final question, which is how would you like to see our culture redefine the journey through depression? More broadly put, how would our culture need to change? What would need to change for depression to be honored in the way that you see it would be helpful for it to be honored? You know, when you ask that question, a big light bulb went off. We're very, very busy people. Um, I wonder, I wonder if depression is acting as a busyness timeout. I wonder if, because we don't rest, we don't sleep, a lot of us don't have a meditative practice, we don't exercise enough, because we're just working all the time. Maybe we're not even eating well. I'm wondering if depression steps forward in a protective sense. You know, because because when people have downtime, I notice for many people, they do something or they watch TV, but they don't ever actually have downtime where they get to sit with their own thoughts and just be. 
I'm wondering if depression is almost a way for people to enter a kind of a enforced meditative practice mm-hmm. of you know being forced to sit. I'm wondering if the intense busyness of our culture is a part of the problem and a part of the thing that's calling depression forward so often. Um, I'm, I'm yeah, I'm wondering if there's a way that we could we could give people the freedom to rest and to take time out when they need to. Uh, I think we have to change capitalism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about production and and making money and keeping going and and striving. Um, And sometimes you don't even realize that what you're striving for and what you're making money for has no meaning to you anymore. The meaning went out of it years ago. Sometimes depression is a call. It's a call to inaction, but it is also a call to an action for your soul. Is this work working? Is this life livable? And I think if we all get down to it, our modern lives are pretty unworkable. And maybe depression is our friend telling us there's a different way. That'd be cool. Mm, Beautiful. Very good. I've been speaking with Carla McLaren. She is a contributor to a new anthology, as well as being responsible for the title of a book called (laughs) Darkness Before Dawn, Redefining the Journey Through Depression. With Sounds True, Carla has also created a book and an audio series on the language of emotions, what your feelings are trying to tell you, as well as a book and audio series on the art of empathy, a complete guide to life's most essential skill. Carla, I always learn stuff when I talk to you. It's so helpful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Soundstree.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.